Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 29. Exodus 12, verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all of the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up! Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go! Serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone. And bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked as they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt. For it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait. Nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a watching, a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. 
But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired servant may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Is this yours? Yeah, that one's yours. Sorry, grabbing the wrong one. Thank you. Let me uh, ask God's blessing upon his word. Father, we pray as we have already prayed that you would give us great desire for you and we pray specifically that it would be met now in your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> want to take you to uh, an occurrence, a conversation that I think we've all had at some point. Some of us, by nature of how we think, it may happen a bit more than others. The conversation goes something like this. You're talking to a friend or a family member, a spouse or somebody, somebody that you enjoy, and you are excited about a story. Oh, you're excited, right? It it was either a story that, that made you laugh. Maybe it was a story that made you uncomfortable. Maybe it was a story with tremendous kind of broad-reaching implications that are just going to change the entire world. The universe will be different. And you tell this story to your friend or your spouse or your neighbor or whatever. And you get this response. (laughs) You know what that response is. It's their version of you having to say, well, I guess you just had to be there. It's the awkward, uncomfortable, I heard, but I don't understand. So I'm just going to kind of smile and nod, and I might even chuckle politely. Now, if you're the person who's prone to receiving that, you understand exactly kind of what has happened. You've told the story and all of the emotional significance didn't translate. It's not the information. It's not that, oh, the person doesn't understand exactly what happened. It's the significance, and specifically the emotional significance didn't translate. Yes, I told you a story about something my children did, and it was adorable. Well, you may understand the facts of it, but you don't get the emotion of how adorable it was and how I should laugh at that. 
or this crazy thing that happened at work. And you don't understand how you should be outraged as I am because you understand the facts. (coughs) But they don't carry quite the same emotional punch. You just had to be there. I'll be honest, that's not a phrase I enjoy hearing. I probably hear it more than many. A passage like this prompts real effort from us to try to prevent a similar type of occurrence taking place. God is speaking, Moses is speaking, the Spirit is speaking. And we can get the facts, but passages like this demand a little bit of extra labor from the reader to make sure we work to get our emotions right. Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 29 through 51, is a terrible passage. It's terrible. I mean, we could go through and think about all of the different things to kind of get us emotionally prepared. We could go back and remember 9-11. We could go back and remember the Banda Aceh Boxing Day tsunami, a quarter of a million people disappearing in an hour and a half. We could go back and rehearse and remember the great sorrows that you have lived, the loved ones that you have lost, the times when you have wept the most deeply. And it might, in some way, prep us for the emotion of Exodus chapter 12. Because there's nothing dry or easy about this passage. You remember, I mean, we're talking at this point 430 years of slavery. And I'll be honest, that does not carry great emotional import for me. I'm not like, oh, I'm not, you know, torn up about that. Others would be. And the type of slavery that Israel has been under is brutal. Remembering, I mean, at least at portions of this, it was mandatory to kill your children when they were born. Again, moms in the room, think about that. Think about what it would be like to grow up under a regime that demanded the execution of your sons. Think about what it would be like to live under a regime that tries to control the birth rate by working you so hard that you miscarry. Or people are too tired to even be in the same place at the same time. To think about 400 years under a regime that hates the living and true God and has tried to cram the gods of Egypt down your throat. To think about multiple pharaohs enacting their wrath, their petty, small-minded wrath on the people of God, and this one even after destruction, after destruction, after destruction, after destruction has fallen upon the land of Egypt. 
By the time we get to verse 29, there's one thing that kind of is clear, if nothing else, and that is this is not neat and tidy getting to this place. This book is a book of death so far. The death of the Israelites in the land, even though they're continuing to grow. The death of the Egyptians as plague after plague after plague has come upon the land. But nothing has broken Egypt until now. And again, you have to think about it. This is a nation that had their entire water source turned to blood and were like, man, we can shake that off. Wow, that's impressive. I'd be like, and I'm out, guys. I'll catch you later. I'm done here. I'm gone. Let's go find another river to live by because this one's messed up. Bugs, frogs, boils. That, that actually, to be fair, if I had made it past the Nile one, the boils, that's when I'm like, no, we're gone. We're gone. Family pack up. Like, we got it. We got it. I don't care how much I love Egypt. If I were an Egyptian, I'm out now. Like, when we have a nation of boils, it's time to leave. I'm sorry. But to think how much of the land had died already. I mean, to think the land stunk. You do not have as much death as has happened already and not have had just long-term consequence. Until you get to verse 29. And everything changes. At midnight, the Lord... The God of Israel, not the false deities of Egypt, not the Pharaoh himself, not anyone who might even think themselves powerful. No, the Lord God comes into Egypt and strikes down all of the firstborn in the land. And notice how Moses highlights it. From Pharaoh's house, the perceived deity himself, the mouthpiece to the gods, Pharaoh, the mighty king of Egypt, from his house down to the deepest dungeon, every firstborn dies. And oh yeah, by the way, the livestock too. It doesn't tell us exactly how they die. I'm going to suggest from the text, I don't think it's peacefully. I don't, I don't think this is one of those where everybody's in bed and suddenly uh, the firstborn just kind of stop breathing. Because everyone notices instantly. And there is a great cry in Egypt. To think about the young mom who had just given birth to her firstborn son. The couple celebrating their first anniversary and the husband drops dead. Maybe the 20th anniversary. The entire land is killed. That emotionally should require something of us. In fact, actually, I tried to set you up a little bit for that with how the order of worship was built today. 
Some of those passages we read today are hard. That Romans 9 passage is emotionally brutal to have to think through. How is it that God works this way? That God's mighty declarative act here in Egypt, his mighty act that's going to define the rest of the Bible, is to destroy all of the firstborn of a nation in a moment. Verse 31, again, you get a sense of how bad it is. That the hard-hearted Pharaoh, I mean, this guy has nerves of steel. He has looked death in the eye time and time and time again, and it's just been like, no, it's fine, bring it. And now he's like, and I'm out, I'm done. Calls Moses and Aaron, brings them in and says, get out. Go away, I'm done. Oh, bless me too. That bless me also is really interesting. We kind of chuckle at it. And I think we probably should. But it actually gives you an insight as to how broken the man ultimately is. That the two guys that he hates more than anyone else on the planet, he's throwing them out of the nation with his entire economy in tow. I mean, please understand, when he sends Israel out, it's not just like, oh, yes, we're going to release all the Israelites. He's sending the entire economy with him. I mean, it would be very much like today of like sending out all of our medical professionals and all administrators related to any sort of medicine in America, just sending them to another country. That's more than 16% of the entire American economy. Every dollar spent, right? 16% of them is spent on medicine. It's like sending that entire thing out of the country and the entire, I mean, you think, well, what would happen? The economy is going to just fall apart. And as he throws them out, he tacks in this little thing at the end, which lets you know how terribly afraid he is. I don't know who you guys are, but your God is death. I'm okay actually being a little superstitious, he says. You guys got to get out of here. And if you somehow can save my keister along the way, I'm okay with that too. And you think, man, what do we do with this? Oh, what do we do with this? It's interesting how this plague becomes in so many ways the portrait of God's working that gets traced all the way through the scriptures, the time where God comes and kills a nation. He devastates them. He brings them to their knees. He kills all of the firstborn, all of the livestock, and then takes their entire economy away. And this would become the portrait of how our God saves his people. It's interesting, though, that if we actually kind of pause and think a little bit more carefully, we realize there's actually two salvations that are taking place at this moment. It's really interesting if you think about it. 
God is saving his people in verses 29 through 32 from two very specific things. He's saving them from bondage to Egypt, and he's saving them from himself. Both salvations are written out here in the verse. It's amazing. It's really interesting to think about. Pharaoh goes and calls Moses and Aaron to him, and they make it there without being killed. Now, obviously, Moses wouldn't be because we know he has an older brother, but Aaron? To think that no one dies in all of Israel because God has already set them aside. He's preserving for himself people in both destructions, both salvations, salvation from Egypt and salvation from himself. This is supremely important to understand about the very nature of Christianity because it is the language that will be picked up in the New Testament. What is it that we need to be saved from? Well, you need to be saved from your sins. That was the language I heard all of the time as a child growing up in this denomination. You need to be saved from your sins. And is that right? Yes, it is. That is correct. All creatures, children, humans are born in bondage to sin. That's how they come out of the womb. You don't have to teach them evil. Right? Young parents fully understand this. It's marvelous the way their children invent evil. Periodically, you actually want to stop and applaud, except you don't encourage evil. Like, I, that's impressive. I, I hadn't even thought of that. That's genuinely astonishing. But the bigger issue, actually, is not just salvation from sin, but salvation from the God who punishes sin. Salvation from the judgment of God himself. Did you catch that language in Romans 9? God's patience with his vessels of wrath. Oh, what an awful term. A bowl designed not to hold water or salad or fruit. A bowl made specifically to hold wrath. The salvation that God provides is from the most terrible of things. Bondage to sin and from himself. Please do not underestimate the significance of his wrath. It's imperative, too, that as we talk about this as a church today, as we talk about this in the land in which we live with the children that we have been entrusted, that we make sure we are not reductionistic and drop one of those two aspects of salvation. We need to be clear that we're addressing for our children. Look, part of what God saves you from is saving you from your sin. You don't have to be a slave to sin anymore. You become a slave to righteousness. Your life changes. But please in no way truncate or shorten the gospel to ignore that terrible wrath of God. Because when we drop that wrath of God out of the picture, we end up with a salvation that is entirely horizontal. 
It's a, I sometimes am a wretched person to my wife or to my children or to my neighbors or toward my coworkers. And if God will just help me be a better person, things will change. And that's true. But it misses the, the beating heart of salvation. That God has spared me from his wrath. A wrath that was poured out on the cross in its entirety. A wrath that is said to be finished on the cross for the people of God so that I will never experience His wrath. I can't experience His wrath. Even as a child, if I wanted to, which I don't, I couldn't. I couldn't manufacture a situation where I could because it is finished. Oh, may it never be that we reduce the gospel, the full portrait of the scriptures to to something small. For when we have a small problem, we'll have a small gospel. And when we have a small gospel, we will have a small God. And in fact, actually, you might have caught that in the prayer in Psalm 63. A longing for a bigger God. It's not that he's not big. (laughs) The problem is between my ears and in my heart. His salvation doesn't stop there. And we continue into verse 33 and following as he changes gears. And it's interesting, the, the kind of commentary that is explained here. The Egyptians were urgent with the people. No joke. No joke. Again, I don't know what that death was like. I'm fairly certain it was not like they just went peaceably in their sleep. I suspect it's probably much more like uh, I had a roommate in college who uh, always, he slept on the bottom bunk and always used to dream that the bunks collapsed on him. And so about once a week in the middle of the night at like three in the morning, he would start screaming like somebody had stabbed him. Not a great way to wake up. I can't tell you how many times I fell out of the top bunk. We had a four stack, fell out of the top bunk trying to get to him to see exactly what was going on and why he was dying. He's fine. (laughs) The Egyptians are urgent to get the people out of the land. No joke. We will all be dead. And interestingly, are they wrong? (laughs) Not really. God's just killed all the firstborn. If you don't get Israel out of the land, who knows what he would do the next time? If he were to take the plague knob and turn it up to 11, we don't know what the next one's going to be. They're not wrong. Get out of here. Please go away. And I love verse 34. So the people took their dough before it was even leavened. They just stuck it in bowls and they tied it on their back. It's really interesting how God has been preparing Israel for this. He's given them instructions, but even still they don't know the exact moment. It's, again, the same kind of language that's picked up in the New Testament talking about being ready for the life to come. The second coming and things like that. One of the illustrations used in the New Testament is this uh, labor pains coming on a woman. I love that one. Because it's like, well, yeah, do you know the exact moment labor's happening? Well, I mean, you don't know the exact moment, but you've had most of a year to get ready. I mean, namely, you've had almost nine months to kind of figure it out. Something's happening. Most cases, at least. 
but you don't know the exact moment. Again, this preparatory idea for God's people of like, look, you don't exactly know. You're not in charge of time and space and energy in the world. Robert made that point beautifully earlier. Only God is in charge. So even though Israel's been warned, they didn't know the exact moment. They throw their bread in a bowl, tie it on their back, time to get moving. I have this kind of mental picture uh, of, if you remember the old Robin Hood movie, the Disney Robin Hood movie, it's, I think, the best Disney movie ever made, uh, but where Robin Hood and Little John are rub- they're running with like their pockets stuffed with jewels, you know, and they're like hoofing it out of town and they have so much wealth they can't even like fully carry all the bags of gold. That's how I kind of mentally picture Israel here, right? Egypt has thrown their money at them, like, please leave. And in essence, what you could kind of see it as is 430 years of wages are paid in just a couple of weeks. So when they're leaving, they're leaving with centuries of wages in hand, fleeing out of Egypt. And again, they can't even hold all of the money they have. Which is why you get in verse 36, they plundered the Egyptians. The Lord went to war and uh, Israel looted Egypt. And they flee from Ramses to suck off the Ramses city they built. 600,000 men on foot. And we're guessing at this point somewhere in the neighborhood of between 2 and 3 million humans fleeing. Again, it's amazing how Moses did not have a herd attack trying to herd cats. It's astonishing. That many people get up and flee and they're moving and it's great and it's wonderful. And I'm going to kind of skip ahead for a moment. You get the assessment, the summary statements in verse 40 of its 430 years. And this was the night where the Lord watched over his people. Verse 42, God watched over his people. And so in the future, they are to celebrate Passover where they watch out for the Lord. And you get this amazing kind of, it feels like a little bit of a U-turn in verse 43. I mean, you just described maybe one of the most horrible and glorious experiences in a handful of verses, and then now you're back to giving Passover instructions that you already gave us just prior. But I think there's a significant thing here. Verses 29 through 32 lay out for us the nature of salvation. That is, it's getting both the problem of sin solved and the problem of the wrath of God solved. Verses 33 through 36 lay out the additional blessings connected to salvation. In the New Testament church, we would say things like friendship, and things like love, and gentleness, and peace, and joy. But this kind of seemingly U-turn in verse 43, this you know, crazy shift, it's actually not. Because here God is explaining to his people what the purpose of the Exodus was. The purpose of the Exodus was not to simply spare them from death. The purpose of the Exodus was not even to free them from bondage to evil or bondage to Egypt. The purpose of the exodus and salvation ultimately is not even about the ancillary blessings of God's working. The primary, 
the dominant, the central, the main idea of the exodus and salvation as a whole is that God would bring out a people for himself so they would know him. So they would know him. Verse 43, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of Passover. No foreigner shall eat it. And then it goes into explaining exactly who can. Slaves can, but only if they've been circumcised. Verse 45, foreigner, hired migrant workers, people just visiting, they can't. They're not allowed to. Only people of the covenant. Only people that have uh, been men who've been circumcised, who are marked as being inside the covenant, are marked as being the people of God. Because what's the key thing about the Exodus? The whole main idea is that you would come out and know the Lord. Remember, that's actually even the answer God gave from the very beginning. Go tell Pharaoh you're going to go out to the desert to worship me. Well, yeah, that's exactly right. The primary element, the primary central point of salvation is to know God. And I know right now you're probably saying, well, yes, yes, I know, thank you. (laughs) That's so obvious. And I would say, but if you were to actually consider your life, would it be obvious? Or do we spend more time searching for the riches of Egypt than we do for the God who gave them? Do we spend more time searching for the peace and the patience and the gentleness and the joy and the kindness than the God who is those things? Do we get so caught up in the secondary blessings of the kingdom of God that we miss the king? This is where I would encourage you to be honest about yourself. Again, those blessings are good. They're great, in fact, actually. But they're secondary. Seek first the kingdom of God, righteousness. All other blessings flow out of that primary relationship. You see, when when that relationship with the Lord is correct, who knows what can happen? The amazing miracles that will take place. In fact, actually, I cheekily skipped over one of those. Verse 37, all of these people leave 600,000 men on foot besides women and children, so two to three million quite likely. Plus, verse 38, a mixed multitude also went up with them. To think about how Israel has been evangelistic along the way. And so other slaves in Egypt have been like, "Um, by the way, they're dying and you're not. I think I know which side I want to be on. 
Oh, yeah, by the way, they have boils and you don't. The creepy liquid darkness, it's over there. It's not over here. I'm out, guys. I want to become Israel. I don't want to be Egypt. So that that is, in that language, is designed intentionally to highlight the fact that it's not just a monolithic Israel that's coming out. It's not just a group of Jews descended specifically, but they've been picking up strays along the way. So that they too would know the living and the true God. And I would say here, particularly for you children, be reminded, kiddos, salvation does not mean coming in through the doors into this building. Just because you walk into the church, it doesn't mean that you're saved. I wish it did. We'd build the biggest sanctuary we possibly could, and then I would kidnap people on a regular basis and (laughs) usher them into the door. It doesn't mean baptism is what saves you. Again, I've made this joke before, but I would carry water pistols all the time. The church's water bill would be ridiculous. Salvation comes through it. A relationship with God that he establishes in his son and by his word and adults too if you have no idea what that means don't squander the confusion it's a gift if you sit in the pew and go well I've been in church all my life and I have no idea please don't waste that confusion it's a gift designed to help transform you For those that do know for sure, it is imperative that we to consider our lives. I would even go so far as to say this, that we would not squander the death of the Egyptians. For it was an instructive lesson for us that God is the mighty God and he should be my satisfaction. And maybe... Maybe we need to spend a little bit of time repenting for finding our satisfaction in the plundered wealth of the Egyptians instead of the God who did it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus who lived for us and died for us. We thank you that the Exodus tells ultimately his story. We do confess, O God, that we are again too easily satisfied. Forgive us. O God, forgive us. Turn our eyes to Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.